okay, I can't like come in your butt, but like, <laughs> get <close. laughs> she says poetry is the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams. Bad girls, bad women, <laughs> or the ones who like to be naughty, might go out and play. There will be enough female justices on the Supreme Court. When there are nine, of course. Another woman is possible. Another woman has always already began. Okay, how's it going? It's good. It's summer's wrapping up, I guess. Um, how are you? Good. It's uh, summer's not wrapping up for me for another two months. Um, <laughs> but it's it's nice today. It's like probably eighty-ish, eighty-five right now. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm outside, so you might hear some weird sounds. Oh, you're outside. Yeah, there's some. There's like a kitty, yeah, I have like a balcony kind of, but yeah, there's like a, a cat that's always like, meow, so it's kind of loud, Aww, but it's cute. Wait. Is it like just in the neighborhood kind of thing? Yeah, it's like a neighborhood cat. He's really cute. Aww. Oh my gosh. His Miles. Yeah, he's kind of shy though. Like he always runs away from me, but then he's like, he like stares at me and his face is so pretty. He's like a, it's like a lion. <laughs> you want to hear this really funny story? Yeah. One time I was like walking with somebody in a neighborhood and then this, there was like this cat near us and we were like, oh, okay. And then this car came by and it like slowed down and it was like, hey, zero. And like, we thought that he was referring to us as like zero, zero. but that's the name of the cat. But so oh. then immediately we were like responding like, um, uh, okay, like. Hey, asshole, like, what? <laughs> That's so funny. But anyway, and then the cat's name was Zero, and it was like, uh, whoops. Okay, <laughs> so funny story. That's funny. Zero out of ten. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it would be funny if someone did, like, literally call you a zero, but yeah. it's also, like, who would – I feel like that's, like, a bully in, like, the 60s maybe would use that. Phrase. Maybe, yeah. Loser. I've never heard someone call someone a dork. Yeah. Okay, dork. <laughs> Zero um, hero. Yeah. So today we're talking about Audrey Lord, and okay, I don't even know what exactly. I guess this is like a collection of essays. It's like a small selection of essays, and it looks like it was published in 2017. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like so, pretty hard to find in print. Also, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have this little penguin modern, like, it's a just very slight, thin little book. It's 50 pages, exactly. So it's not long at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, they're, it's really small, like the, it's like a pocket book, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the ones that we have in here, those are the ones we chose to, you know, uh, talk about for now and just sort of like figure out some of her views from this. But the ones included are Poetry is Not a Luxury. Uses of the erotic, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, uses of anger, and learning from the 1960s. Um, But yeah, I guess, you know, most people have heard of Audre Lorde before. She died in 1992, I'm pretty sure. So right before we were born. Right. She describes herself as a black lesbian mother warrior poet. Um. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so that's great and um yeah basically she's obviously a poet she's specifically trying to address like all the isms basically but like racism sexism classism homophobia heterosexism ableism um and then just like in a positive way like represent the experiences of like lesbianism um like black female identity illness and disability um, and like feminism. So yeah, just a lot of 
stuff to try and deal with, but it is very political. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's very we- intersectional. Like, she didn't invent intersectionality, but she's, like, a really good, like, person who's, like, on the academic side and in mm-hmm. the activist side that really represents, like, kind of, like, brings it all together in that way. Um, and is, yeah. is, like, a poster child for, I feel like, you know, I guess high quality intersection intersectionality, high quality praxis. High quality praxis, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, she did have cancer, breast cancer, and oh, um, oh yeah, yeah. There was a whole documentary made about it. There was like right. a and she yeah. wrote cancer journals, which is like a whole book of hers, which are just her journals from when she had cancer, mm-hmm. and then they like kind of fought it back and then she was still writing poems and stuff. She actually became the New York um, poet laureate, like the poet laureate of New York state, Mm -hmm. which like a year. Yeah. Basically until her death. Um, Yeah. She also, when she got cancer, took the name Gamba Adisa, which is like an African uh, name, which means warrior. She who makes her meaning known. So I thought that was interesting. Because, again, she, she really likes this warrior idea. Yeah, she also likes giving herself her own name. Like, she also isn't, doesn't, what's one of her books, like, Zanny, like, one of mm-hmm. my names or something. And then also Audrey herself, like, she changed her name when she was, I think, like, 12 or 13. So, like, it used to have a Y at the end, but she, like, dropped the Y because she liked the way Audrey with an E looked with Lord with an E at the end. Yeah, it's really good because they have, if you look at like the last three letters, they're the same, just like Mm -hmm. in a different order. Mm -hmm. No, it's cool. They're the same amount of letters. It seems like, yeah, like a poet would be like, yeah, this looks good. Yeah, (laughs) she's into that. Naming herself poetry. Yeah. Well, yeah, one of my core questions throughout this is going to be basically, what is her definition of woman? And I do think she's very critical of American feminism and how it's left out women of color. Actually, whoa, Marsha P. Johnson died the same year. Yeah, 1992. And they were both in New York. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense that they would. Yeah, they would know each other. Right. And she was in Berlin for a while, too. Like, I think in the 80s. She was in Berlin, and then she came back to the U.S. Audrey, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then, I mean, there's lots of other people that she's associated with. I mean, uh, I think uh, Sylvia Rivera, um, who's like a transgender activist. So uh, they – and also was in New York. So I think they also knew each other. Mm -hmm. So they're all kind of like – circulating during the same time um which is interesting but anyway so yeah back to poetry so I think what I took from poetry is not a luxury is a why she chose poetry as her like well I don't even think it's like a choice it's just like she just is a poet you know um it's really clear she can't like help herself like she's writing in prose but it's like right yeah she's like been a poet since she was like a kid or something it was like Her mom taught her how to read when she was, like, four and taught her how to read and write when she was four and, like, instantly was doing poetry. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting, too, because it seems like specifically for her, she thinks poetry is political or, like, it has this way of, like, it has this political possibility in it. And that's, like, what at least I got from the Poetry's Not a Luxury Chapter is also like, it's not a luxury for us. It's a necessity. Women of color need poetry in order to survive, is what she says. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it is interesting too, because there's a lot of stuff in this chapter where she's contrasting with, quote unquote, the white fathers, which I guess specifically are like the continent, like the continent, like colonial powers, um, because she goes into calling it like European consciousness versus non-European. Mm-hmm. So it is like colonial. But but yeah, so white fathers are contrasted here with the black mother, which is like, that's what she, she refers to it as. So yeah, 
basically we have poetry and I think poetry is also really connected to the erotic. I'm sure you'll see a lot of like parallels, but basically she says it's like specifically poetry is the language of the dark and the feminine and the unconscious that inside women, there's a dark place. It's a place of possibility and it's like ancient and hidden, but it's survived. So it hasn't been able to fully express itself ever before but it's like this reserve of creativity and power that women can draw upon. And so, yeah, again, she specifically is like, this is something women have, which I'm not sure like if it means only women have it. I'm not sure really if she thinks women like, this is like an essentialism thing. Like, Oh, women just have this. Cause it's also, it, it reminded me of young kind of Jung, um, this idea that like, Oh, it's, it's survived over like generations. Like there's this, collective unconscious yeah but it's like yeah exactly and it's like kind of um this pain and oppression from like centuries and centuries are all like built up in this reservoir yeah but another interesting thing was she uses birthing language all around poetry so yeah true which i was like yeah and this is something plato actually does when he talks about like dialogues and like that basically they're birthed it's like birth <laughs> um, which is funny because he really was only thinking men were doing it, but <laughs> well, men did have a lot of sex around Plato. That's true, but I don't think they were given birth. <laughs> but yeah, well, they probably they 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 were through their dialogue. Exactly. Don't you don't you see? Exactly. <laughs> but it is also like, that's funny that it's like um, or not funny, but like it's interesting that it's like, you know, dialogue, like it means two people mm-hmm. uh, and like the birth is happening. So it's like, you, you can't have birth with a monologue. You need two sides. I don't know. We're getting poetic. Cause there's this whole idea with Plato. I mean, we don't need to get into too much, but just that the relationship between the mentor and the student, like that's kind of the intercourse that leads to the birth of the dialogue, mm-hmm. yeah. which I mean, they actually are like, okay, I can't, like, come in your butt, but, like, <laughs> get <close. laughs> Sure you can. <laughs> um, this is good, because I have more stuff to say about Plato. She's clearly very well-read on her, like, Greek mythology and literature. That's exactly, yeah. Um, That's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like she's referenced, like, she's making allusions to these things without explicitly... Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But I did also see this as having to do with race. Because, okay, of course she's talking about the white fathers and the black mother, but then she's also talking about specifically this place is a dark place. And she says, quote, it is neither white nor surface. It is dark and deep. This struck me because I actually know of someone currently who like is, I think they're a a literature professor, but some of the work they do is on like excavating symbolism of darkness as a positive thing, basically, because so much of the time, I feel like we were even taught in school, like, dark is, like, foreboding and bad. Like, if you read in a book, you know, they go into a dark alley or whatever, like, only bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, that it's this, and then, like, light was the symbol for enlightenment. Um, and, like, white is, like, virginity and innocence and salvation and, like, all these things. And, like, darkness is, like, the opposite. And she's giving it this, like, darkness is deep is depth and like it's like where truth is and it's like and whiteness is literally like surface and superficial i mean i just thought it was an i thought it was really interesting specifically that like it is dark this is something specifically for women but also women of color yeah that's a nice reversal of the conventional views of white and dark yeah that also ties in with race And then she says, like, so the birth thing. She says, like, dream births concept, feeling births idea, which I'm not sure the difference between concept and idea. And then knowledge births, therefore precedes understanding. And that all of these things, the way to get to knowledge or to get to understanding is through poetry. Um, And that our dreams, like, dreams and feelings, like, all of this are connected in this, like, feminine matrix, it seems like. But yeah, 
she says poetry is the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams. And so it's like how we make possible certain kinds of thoughts. She even says like we give name to the nameless so it can be thought. Oh yeah. True. That is a thing too. I think in, Oh man, I wish I would, I wish I were able to be more specific about this, but like, uh, well, I think it's like a, a West African culture thing. Like it's multiple cultures within West Africa that, that I think say naming something takes the, like kind of gives you power over it. Mm-hmm. I'd have to research that more, but that's, I, that was something in like one of my anthropology classes in college that they talked about. It's like a, kind of like a religious thing like once you name something once you have a name for it then you can start to control it or harness its energy right and that's interesting too based on her naming herself yeah she's she's very into harnessing energy and things like that like she really wants to to like see what's already there inside of us it seems like and just kind of bring it out um like i think she sees this like I mean, she's clearly very, she's much more like feeling oriented than as a person than like I am, for instance. So it's a little harder for me to understand. But when I try to understand it, I think that she like really firmly believes that, that like there's this, there's a lot of power in people that they just have to kind of realize is there. Part of the power is like a taking back. So it's like, we've been named in a certain way. We've been called certain things by like the colonizers, but like, this is our chance to tell our own stories through poetry. And like this weird thing she says too, is like, uh, okay. So there is this tension, like you said, between like feelings and then like Mm -hmm. thought kind of. And she says like, um, the white fathers like told us that ideas are precious. And so we thought that's all we could live on basically. Mm -hmm. But, it is this idea of like not just the ideas, but bringing them into reality. And I think kind of Shuli has this idea too, where she was like, the purpose or like the ultimate endpoint of culture is where like our the possibilities are reality. Like there's no mm-hmm. distinction. Right. So I don't know. It's just an interesting kind of parallel. She talks about European consciousness versus non-European consciousness, mm-hmm. and like how they approach life like what living means to them and she says like for europeans living is a problem to be solved yeah no is that is that in the first chapter okay i'm just trying to find it i think it's on page well yeah you have the same pagination i think so i think it's on nine yeah yeah i remember her saying that though that like Oh, okay, here it is. It's on page two. When we view living in the European mode only as a problem to be solved, we rely solely upon our ideas to make us mm. free. For that's what the White Fathers told us to be precious. But as we become more in touch with our own ancient non-European consciousness, so again, this is something inside that's somehow been retained even though we've been raised in like European civilization. Mm-hmm non-European consciousness of living as a situation to be experienced and interacted with. And so because of that, it's like more about like what our experience actually is. It's not about like, I guess the idea of winning or like just conquering like the difficulties of existence. It's like existing. That's Mm -hmm. what life is. Yeah. That's very interesting. A very interesting critique that the European mode (laughs) Yeah, and then she basically says, like, women uniquely have the possibility of fusing these two approaches, like the European and the non-European. Hmm. I'm not I'm sure not why. Like, I'm still not yeah, sure I why. But I think she can, it has to do with with poetry. Hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, like, yeah, there's this idea of the feelings and, and how important the feelings are and how um, that poetry is something that like almost belongs to women and black women and not white men. And they don't really understand it. Like they don't really want poetry to be insight. It's just like sterile wordplay. Mm. Yeah. That's what she says. Um, 
<laughs> but anyway, so then so she's talking about feelings again and like how feelings are like become our sanctuaries and like the spawning grounds for radical ideas. Um, and that like it is a discipline to learn what our feelings even are and like to trust them and how to express them. And this is something that it does seem like only women are really taught to do. Mm -hmm. She says though that like, yeah, poetry coins the language to express and charter this revolutionary demand. So yeah. And then she also says like, so the white fathers, so obviously she's referring to like continental philosophers here, but like Descartes, she says, told us, I think, therefore I am. But the black mother within each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. So, yeah, you see, like, these very different um, groundings of, like, experience and being. Like, it's not even really about being alive for her. It's about, like, there's no being if it's not freedom. Like, it's not full. I don't know, but then... I don't even know if she needs to actually be free or just have poetry as like a space of freedom. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. I think that was an interesting quote that I think therefore I am. And then the black mother says, I feel therefore I can be free. Poetry coins the language to express and charter this revolutionary demand, the implement, the implementation of that freedom. So I guess she kind of sees poetry as like a revolutionary tool um, something that we need mm -hmm. if we're going to, you know, cause a revolution in our lives and I guess like amongst each other, like she clearly cares a lot about other people, um, and how they feel. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So she, it is a little bit of like a call to action. I feel like this whole chapter. Yeah. I think, yeah, and also just, it's not exactly consciousness raising, because she's definitely, like, uh, critical of those groups in America, but it is, like, you need to think in a different way about, I guess, kind of what European ideals you're capitulating to, even. So when you say, like, she says, like, we always think, like, the head will save us. Um, like, the brain right, will yeah. set us free, but it's actually the heart. Well, I don't know if she says the heart, but it's our feelings and through poetry. <clears throat> and she also says basically, yeah, there's no new ideas. Like, there's not going to be a new idea. It's just like we need to find new ways to like feel those ideas. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, she goes, she also, of course, has a brief critique here of like basically capitalism. She's just like, but also, by the way, like my kids aren't going to be able to dream if they can't eat. <laughs> yeah. And then she's also like, because of these systems that are that care about profit only, like our feelings aren't really meant to survive. Like they're actually a threat, you know? And so, but then she says, but women have survived as poets and there are no new pains. We have felt them all already. Mm -hmm. We have hidden that fact in the same place where we have hidden our power. So yeah, again, it's like women have survived as poets. And they've been, they've, for some, some, in some way, they like can still feel the pain of past generations, like seemingly like in their bodies, like it's within them. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, so that is what I got from that. I got that poetry is a political tool, both for like individuals to be able to imagine a new reality and to express radical feeling to others so that they can imagine a new reality. Yeah, I would say that's true. I have one question for you, though. Do you think that she is also kind of, um, how do I say it, like, uh, using that mind-body duality here? Or would you say she's trying to kind of synthesize and move beyond the binary there? Yeah, I think... So, yeah, just like I was saying, I don't know what she means by woman. I feel like, you know, I'm not sure totally that this psychic place where all this power is, if it's 
really like in our bodies and it's like mm-hmm. she really believes it as like we have carried this there is this metaphorical way in which we've carried it in our bodies and I think that is true that like trauma you know I'm sure you've seen like studies about like yeah like brain patterns children of holocaust survivors and like stuff like that yeah and uh yeah just that there's some way in which like it's still in us but also I mean socially mm-hmm. it's still there but yeah I'm not sure because again like when she says woman does she mean like the feminine as like this abstract thing or like literally a female body because she also talks about like you know right birth. yeah yeah it makes me wonder it's like what does she think a female body is yeah and I'm not really sure but I mean thinking that she was definitely friends with some of these like trans activists it seems like she would she would be aware of it I don't know that she would have thought about it in some way I honestly this this short like this brief set of essays is not enough for mm-hmm. me to really know I me neither think, yeah yeah there's a lot about her that I don't know yet because I mean she she has a lot of writing and I'm not sure how much of it is on gender so much as it is about like kind of philosophy actually like she's pretty philosophical and political mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. cool yeah but yeah I don't know I mean obviously she's lesbian she's queer so she definitely has insight in that way but it's uh it's also kind of a slightly different context I think and probably had, you know, certain aims of her own. Like, we'll get to the 1960s chapter, but that one is just, like, it's really clear that she is trying to make people understand that, like, all these feelings that they're feeling are very politically important. Um, and we can use them and harness that yeah. power and things like that. Uh, but, yeah, so um, that's kind of all I had to ask about that first chapter. Did you want to do the uses of the erotic one next or did you have more to say about um poetry yeah i do you can start that i just want to say one more thing which is i would be curious like how she's defining mm-hmm. lesbian but i'm curious if like she's a lesbian if that means she only likes female bodied feminine like cis people or if it's also like a more because to me like i wouldn't use the word lesbian for myself obviously for lots of reasons but because I feel like it is actually really limiting. It's kind of saying like, oh, A, I'm a woman, and B, I only like women. So I think that's another interesting word that she would use to describe herself. I mean, it is important because it's it's like, no, I'm not just a woman. I fucking want to fuck women. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like, yeah, I would be interested to see what she thinks a woman is, especially if she does have that you know, engagement with trans activism. But yeah, yeah, so I think it relates to the erotic because if, I mean, I think she's defining erotic in like a really wide way, but if her eroticism is a lesbian eroticism, then I would want to sort of understand what that is. But but yeah, you can start with the erotic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, her main point in uses of the erotic is that the erotic has been kind of perverted in our patriarchal culture to only mean the pornographic which Audrey says is the opposite of the erotic. Um, She says that the erotic is a source of power and information inside of us. Um, Women have been taught to suppress their erotic power for themselves and turn it into a pornographic service for men. Men are like ants maintaining a colony of aphids to provide a life-giving substance for their masters. (laughs) Um, So it's really clear here that she thinks that the erotic can be used for much more than it's already being used. It's being perverted. It's being controlled by, by patriarchy. Um, and she says the difference between the erotic and pornography is that pornography emphasizes sensation without feeling. Um, I don't really know what that means. I mean, if we want to really get into it, like I, there's a, I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole of like kind of around like the seventies and eighties the second wave feminists split on their views on like pornography and sex work basically. So there were some feminists who described themselves as sex positive and then, you know, derogatorily named the other side sex negative because like people like um, Andrea Dvorkin and Catherine McKinnon 
who sponsored a bill who like I think they wrote a bill together to that was like trying to ban pornography basically um and fine people for like procuring women for it yeah so yeah I think like I did read some Andrea Jorkin and there's also like some stuff that especially like more recently is like not about necessarily the stop of production of porn but more like that it shouldn't be something that like just like kind of assaults women wherever they go because it's like on everything and like you can't walk down a street like as like a five-year-old girl without like seeing women portrayed in a certain way and like that be part of your like essentially your imaginary so I think it's also like there's like the sex positivity, which is like the work itself is work and it's clearly valuable work. And um, people like, you know, need it in some sense. When people learn how to have sex, kind of, not learn how to have sex, but you know, when you're a kid, like that's a, the first way you really get information um, about like. Yeah. I mean, it is now, but it's also, I think there's so much about technology that that is being kind of not talked about in these discussions just yet, or like, I mean, I'm sure it's being talked about, but I guess I, I'm sure there's whole, like, studies on it and that discuss how, like, porn affects people or, like, how technology has changed it, like, probably like made it a lot better, a lot more effective. Those, you, could, you could probably find things that talk about how it's, how it's like a drug or, you know, how it functions similarly to a drug um, psychologically or uh, neurochemically or whatever. So, I mean, even, even in the past, you know, 40 years since these battles were being thought about pornography specifically so much of the landscape of what pornography is has changed um as has our culture well yeah even like i don't think that the internet was up and fully running yeah right right yeah when they were fighting about it it's like i mean it was still it was still like pictures in magazines and things like that so I wonder what Andrew Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon would say uh, today. <laughs> it's pretty different. Um, but yeah, anyway, that that's just kind of a side thing that I, I don't really know the answer to, but that this, this there's a lot of history here. And, and Audrey Lord was on, she wasn't really on the side of the, the, the like sex negative feminist, but she, she does have more writing about like, specifically BDSM pornography and BDSM culture she doesn't think it's good like she's kind of she's she's moderate about it but she she's got this article that I think she co-wrote in like a collection of essays and stuff about sadomasochism and she just argues that it's basically just reproducing in a way that she doesn't think is erotic um She's, she thinks it's just reproducing in an extreme way, like the power structures that already exist in our society. So she's thinking it from, from like a really political lens, which I can definitely see. Yeah, um, but BSM, like the female can be like, she can be like a dominatrix. like. Yeah, so that's what she's, she's actually specifically talking about this, this like sex positive feminist group in San Francisco called Sam, Samoas or Samoa, S-A-M-O-I-S. That was like this lesbian BDSM group. This it was like, you know, like women like wearing leather and whipping each other and whatnot and being all loud and proud about it, which she was like, well, I'm a lesbian. Like, I disagree with this Um, because I guess she's just kind of anti-violence pretty much. So anyway, yeah, that that's like a whole other level to this chapter that I think needs to just be mentioned that she she does have a lot of feelings about like specifically what kinds of sex like specifically I guess the politics of different kinds of sex um 
even in a lesbian context. Like it goes deeper than just I'm a lesbian, you know, lesbian good. It's like, no, specifically, I feel like we are constantly acting out our societal inequalities, our social problems. And like through like our bodies and our minds and our feelings, we need to change it like from the core of ourselves from the deepest part of ourselves out to the inside. And so like, if there's any sort of like remnants of like violence, colonialism, (laughs) abuse buried deep inside of us, then like we shouldn't be playing that out in real life. And like, I guess she thinks that that's part of, that's what sadomasochism is a part of. So yeah, she has like a, it's like pretty, like a pretty developed viewpoint. I think that connects to her, her chapter on poetry and, like her ideas of the body and politics and she yeah the personal is political like that's also something that she said yeah so anyway i can pause there if you had like had any comments well okay so i mean i did want to say something about just the comparison between the erotic or like what she's describing as the erotic and poetry like it seems like the erotic is the source for poetry or at least, like, mm-hmm. she's describing it in really similar ways. Like, when, even when you were saying, like, it's this resource that's, like, deep within and it's female and, like, it's, like, this unexpressed power. Those sound like the, pretty much the exact same descriptor she was giving to, like, the reservoir that we use for poetry. Right, exactly. So that's what I was going to say is that she one quote she has is I speak of the erotic as an assertion of the life force of women, the open and fearless underlining of my capacity for joy. That's like a lot of poetry in that quote alone. (laughs) She also says the erotic is not only about sex. Like that's pretty clear. Pornography emphasizes sensation with that feeling. Oh yeah. I already said that. Uh, The internal requirement toward excellence, which we learn from the erotic. So, so like, she thinks that the erotic is not only about sex, it it's an assertion of the life force of women, it's an underlining of her capacity for joy, and it's an internal requirement towards excellence. And that there's like a grave responsibility. This was like the most, the very end of the chapter, she says, the erotic empowers us and forces us to evaluate all aspects of our existence honestly in terms of their relative meaning within our lives. And this is a grave responsibility not to settle for the convenient, the shoddy, the conventionally expected, nor the merely safe. So there, how I took that was really that it's, she's saying that the erotic because it underlines our capacity for joy, because it, is a requirement towards excellence that we we experience all these other things in our lives and we automatically kind of benchmark it i guess against the erotic because we she's saying don't settle for the shoddy the conventionally accepted nor the merely safe don't settle for the convenient it is a grave responsibility to bring like the erotic into as many parts of our life as possible, it sounds like. And she says, this is why the erotic is feared. For once we, once we begin to feel deeply all the aspects of our lives, we begin to demand from ourselves and from our life pursuits that they feel in accordance with that joy, which we know ourselves to be capable of. I don't know. Do you think that's a high expectation though, (laughs) to, to expect that like, everything like to kind of just like it sounds like she just says like have a high standard you know we should have high standards um i think it goes back to the european non-european consciousness actually too because i think it's about like feeling our lives like in the fullest like living our lives in a way that like we're experiencing like okay first of all one another interesting quote is she says the erotic is the nurturer or nursemaid of all our deepest knowledge, which again, she, she 
think poetry brings us knowledge. So I think it's again connected, but also again, we're using feminine language, the nurturer or nursemaid. So we're literally mm. suckling <laughs> the erotic. <laughs> Mm-hmm. True. She obviously also says, like, there's a hierarchy, but she says another important way in which the erotic connection functions is the open and fearless underlining of my capacity for joy in the way my body stretches to music and opens into response, hearkening to its deepest rhythm. So every level upon which I sense also opens to the erotically satisfying experience, whether it's dancing, building a bookcase, writing a poem. Yes mindfulness but it is kind of like that it's just like that it's like this powerful way of like like it is eros it's like a love for life it's like a thirsting for like the sensations and moments of life and like really feeling it versus just like using life as a way to like get to certain things if that makes sense yeah like solve to solve problems the european way of life um she talks about Europeans again here. I'm trying to find where it is. I also don't want to spend like way too much time on, on each chapter. I have one more thing to say about, or well, yeah, kind of like one larger topic with like three subtopics. Um, but you can, did you find the, where she talks about Europeans? Yeah. She says, but this erotic charge is not easily shared by women who continue to operate under an exclusively European American male tradition. I know it was not available to me when I was trying to adapt my consciousness to this mode of living sensation. So basically living under this electrical charge of eroticism and like creativity is like being female, which is another thing. It's like, there's always like, she says like womanness is like the heart of womanness is poetry. And then like, this is like the erotic is a special feminine, like, it's on the feminine plane, even if it's accessed by, like, males as well. Huh? I wanted to go over, like, a little bit deeper into the word erotic and the word eros. So eros is both, obviously, we know it's a uh, a Greek god, one of the four first, like, the fourth god created after Gaia, I think Thanatos, and the other one. Oh, is it Aphrodite? No. It's a very important god. There was a cult of Eros, et cetera, et cetera. Wait, are you talking about um, Greek? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Not Aphrodite? There, there was a bigger cult of Aphrodite, and then Eros had a smaller cult in, like, one, like one city-state. Well, yeah, there's, like, actually the symposium is all about the god Eros, and, like, well, the symposium is about love, right? But then all the speeches... This is Plato's symposium, end up being like them discussing, you know, is Eros the greatest god or like, you know, whatever. But yeah, so they're talking about Eros as a god. Right, yeah. And it's described as a universal force that moves all things towards peace, perfection, and divinity. So so I think she's really using the Platonic uh the Platonic Eros. So Greek philosopher Plato developed an idealistic concept of Eros, which would proved to be very influential in modern times. In general, Plato did not consider physical attraction to be a necessary part of Eros, like the concept of Eros. Mm -hmm. According to Plato, Eros could be diverted to philosophy. So this kind of connects to Audre Lorde's Mm -hmm. ideas of like, yeah, like requirement toward excellence, the assertion of a life force. Um, It's much more philosophical for Plato and for Audre, um, inclusive of the mathematical, ethical, and aesthetical training rather than dissipated in sexuality for the purpose of using erotic energy as a vehicle for the transformation of consciousness and union with the divine. So yeah, it's very high. It's like high concept er, er, erotic. Um, And then Freud also for, for Freud, Eros is not the same thing as libido. It's not exclusively the sex drive, but it's our life force and the will to live it's the desire to create life. Um, instincts from the arrows were opposed by forces from the ego. Um, and then it's also in his later stuff, Eros is opposed by the destructive death instinct of Thanatos. So it's kind of the opposite of a death drive. Um, and then Jung also said that the counterpart, I don't really like Jung's interpretation, but um, his is very binarist because 
the counterpart to Eros is Logos, uh, a Greek term for the principle of rationality. So Jung considers Logos to be a masculine principle while Eros is a feminine principle. And according to Jung, woman's psychology is founded on the principle of Eros, the great binder and loosener, whereas from ancient times, the ruling principle ascribed to man is Logos. The concept of Eros can be expressed in modern terms as a psychic relatedness and that Logos is objective interest. But Eros is ultimately the desire for wholeness, and although it may initially take the form of passionate love, it is a more, it's more truly a desire for psychic relatedness, a desire for interconnection and interaction with other sentient beings. So I really like all that, how it goes, Plato, Freud, Jung, and you can see all of that in Audrey's idea of what the erotic is. I was going to say something about Plato's view because I think it connects a lot. So in the symposium, but basically he talks about this model of the soul and it's basically like before birth okay so there's this huge cycle the soul like has wings and it i'm sure you've heard of the like tripartite soul where there's like a chariot there's like a charioteer and there's like two horses have you like heard this i have not no okay and so basically like the you know the charioteer is like in, you know, trying to control the horses, but each of the horses, like, one of them is, like, black. It's actually, is black and, like, the bad-natured one, and it, like, just wants to, like, go after pleasure and, like, it's kind of like the id. And then, which, like, there are a lot of comparisons to that. And then, like, the white horse is, like, good-natured and, like, it, like, will follow instructions and, like, it's, you know, whatever. It's very, like, yeah. Which, you know, goes back to the white and black thing that we were talking about before. But anyway... This soul, um, so basically in order to like uh, fall to earth or like become, you know, uh, imprisoned in like a body, the soul like loses um, its wings. But basically it views like the chariot soul, like it the, at the top of like the arc of where it goes, it like goes in a circle where it has the cycle. There is like the forms and there is like you can see the forms is the idea that like they see truth. And it's like the divine meadow. It's kind of like heaven, but not heaven. It's like where all of the, out of all of like the forms of knowledge are. And then um, basically they, you catch sight of the true and then you eventually fall back to earth, but your soul like remembers in a sense and learning, you know, is recollection, right? Which he has that whole idea of like, it's like reminiscence basically, but that being around the loved one like makes our soul grow wings and mm -hmm. um, because it is reminded of the beauty that it saw like the form of beauty that it saw in its like chariot um cycle oh <laughs> i guess plato i know <laughs> but then basically you become like driven out of your wits um because of the memory of the true and like you lose control of yourself and, like, because of beauty, like, the soul, like, shudders when it sees beauty. And it's, like, aching. Like, it's, like, painful. But this is how you, like, get to truth. And that's why there's this kind of erotic relationship between the mentor and the boy, you know, the young boy. And he does say, like, basically, the, you'll only, your soul will only become winged if you live a philosophical life united with the love of boys. Hmm. But that's, like, basically only men, right? So it's, like, this right. specific – and it is, like, the pederasty. So it's, like, adult men and, like, young boys. And mm -hmm. that, like, you see the beauty of the young boy and it reminds you. It's, I don't know. It's very weird. But he, re he refers, refers to it as birth pains. Like, mm -hmm. this this knowledge that comes from viewing the, 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 the beloved. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I think it kind of – it does relate – um, in the sense that it's like, you're getting, there's this truth you saw before and you only have access to it through the erotic. So yeah. Anyway, there we go. That's all I had to say about that. No, that's cool. And that's all kind of, I had to say about the, this whole chapter too. So I think we've covered it. Um, yeah. Lots of, lots more meaning to the word erotic than I had originally thought. Um, we think of like the way a lover behaves towards like their lover as like a method for like gaining knowledge. Like mm -hmm. you have to like become obsessed 
follow them everywhere or whatever. I don't know. Just like that, like love itself is a method for gaining knowledge. I mean, that it, it obviously relates to philosophy, which is the love of knowledge, but I'm just curious of like, cause she does talk about like our love being the source of like this deep knowledge too. Yeah. So ultimately the erotic is powerful and is something that women specifically can harness for both power and information. She says that a source of power and information. Um, So yeah, there's both elements. It's like power and learning. Um, Yeah. So. And without feeling life is pornographic, even if it's not sex, I think. Like Mm -hmm. she says to be, to refuse to be conscious of what we're feeling is to deny a large part of our experience and to allow ourselves to be reduced to the pornographic. Right. I don't know, just another interesting way where, like, the pornographic is also not totally sexual and, like, the erotic's not totally sexual, but they're, like, these two modes of living. And maybe the erotic is the non-European mode because she was – it's, like, feeling feeling in every moment and stuff like that versus if you're not erotic or the pornographic, then it's just for, like – um like use Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah it's to get it's it's a means to an end yeah the end being a comb i guess okay (laughs) yeah also um, i wanted to note this book i think and i don't know if you got this feeling but that it's written particularly for women and like obviously people like women of color but i think also white women to like understand like if you want to be a feminist here's how black women and white women in the United States, like are not seeing eye to eye. Yeah. And she's still including white women. She's like, yeah, like you're part of this, but also mm-hmm. like kind of, there's a special knowledge that she has because she's a black lesbian. Yeah. Um, I kind of need to go to the bathroom. Can I like stop? Me too. <laughs> yeah. So basically, we just cut off the conversation right after that, and then we decided to make a second episode, just part two, because we'd already spent almost an hour. So basically, that's the end of the episode, but we love you. Leave us a review or comment. Also, I did just edit this entire episode so I do notice that I say like like so much so I really do apologize and I'm working on it thank you for listening to this week's episode of the gender playbook this has been an Eskins theme production intro music by Savannah theme please tune in again next week if you'd like to play some more gender games with us